Hi, this is Mike Klonsky, and today we're having a conversation with Ed Easterling, founder of Crestmont Research. Ed is the author of Unexpected Returns and Probable Outcomes, both published by Cypress House. He's a contributing author to just one thing, 12 of the world's best investors reveal the one strategy you can't overlook, and co-author of chapters about Crestmont Research and Bullseye Investing by John Malden. In addition, Ed previously served as an adjunct professor and taught on alternative investments and financial markets for MBA students at SMU in Dallas, Texas. Ed holds a BBA in business, a BA in psychology, and an MBA from SMU. He also has been involved with the hedge fund and private equity space. We will be offering signed copies of Ed's book, Unexpected Returns. Please write to me through email or LinkedIn to request your copy. We have 17 books left and we'll offer them on a first-come basis. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, member of FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Fixed insurance products and services offered through New England Wealth Management. New England Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice. You should consult a legal or tax professional regarding your individual situation. Thanks for listening, and now we'll get right into the interview. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for joining us today. Mike, good to be with you. So I want to spend a few minutes uh, having you offer your views um, on what's going on and kind of maybe getting into a little bit of, of the work that you do. And it's probably a very small segment of what we're going to talk about of the topics that you cover, right? And that they're in your books at Crestmont and online at Crestmont Research. So the last thing I'll also say, another thing I'll say is that if you want to see Ed's information or get an idea of what he's talking about or what he's writing about, it's crestmontresearch.com, C-R-E-S-T-M-O-N-T, research.com. And I would highly recommend that everybody take the time to go and visit the site. So. And you talk about investment cycles, and um, I think that you know we're in, we're in a cycle now that I don't know. You took about bull bull secular and bear secular, and it would seem to me that most people today would say that we are in a bull market. Maybe until recently, right? So that you know, obviously, that actually may have changed in the past couple of weeks. But how do you define that in terms of the work that you do? And I also just want to key on in terms of how that actually, or how would somebody take that information, understanding secular bull, secular bear, into if I if I'm investing in a mutual fund or if I'm investing in my 401k plan, how would they take that data to, to interpolate that to what's going on? Sure. Well, I think the key is to distinguish between the secular cycles and cyclical cycles. Um, so secular cycles are are long-term periods of either above average or below average returns. The cyclical cycles uh, are these periods of uh, short-term runs and falls. Uh, their cyclical cycles are driven by things like uh, psychology, momentum, technical factors. Uh, you know, I find cyclical factors and cycles very hard to predict, so I don't even try to, what the market's going to do for the next month or quarter or even the next year or two. But when we talk about secular cycles, we're talking about more extended periods, uh, periods of uh, five years, 10 years. Uh, investors' horizons, and that's the the relevance of understanding this secular cycle uh, environment. You know, essentially, I'm more of a market climatologist than I am a market weather forecaster. So the value in having that perspective is to um, uh, uh, to know the kinds of uh, strategies and approaches to take with portfolios. Uh, I would contend that if investors thought the next 10 years would be like the 80s or 90s, they would invest differently than if they thought the next 10 years would be like the 60s and 70s or like the 2000s. As it turns out, secular cycles are very predictable. And uh, from where we sit today, uh, we're 
relatively high in market valuation and and we're set for a secular bear. So investors are right that we're in a, a bull market, but it's a cyclical bull, uh, if we want to call it that at this point. Um, but, the, but the secular cycle that we're currently in is one of below average returns or secular bear. How would you uh, describe that in terms of the last 10 years from 2010 through the end of 19? I think the, uh, the S&P is up three times. Uh, and in your view, we, we've been in a secular bear market. Can you have long-term cyclical bull markets at, to that extent being 10 years? You can, and part of it is, so the key is that, uh, that secular cycles are driven by fundamentals. Um, when we go through periods of uh, revaluation of the market. So for example, in the 60s and 70s, we started with high valuations and because of high inflation, we ended up with low valuations. In the case of the 80s and 90s, we started with low valuations coming out of a high inflation environment and ended with a very low stable inflation rate. So that revaluation that took place is what drove that period of above average and below average returns. It seems to me that the U.S. is the last place of, I don't know, of happiness. Uh, the rest of the world is not following suit in terms of market performance. Our values, are we overvalued now? Are we at a place that you might say to somebody, pay attention, or you want to pay more attention to what's going on because there may be some significant potholes in the road along the way? And uh, the answer is, um, at, at this point, I think we are, we are reaching back to a level of vulnerability. When inflation is low and stable, we should expect that valuations will be high. Um, and valuations had gotten overextended, especially after such strong performance in, or unexpected performance in 19. Um, the break that we had uh, when COVID came out was understandable because there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, this, this, um, the, the market's return back to, to high levels, very surprising. Uh, very surprising because um, it's it's there's still a lot of uncertainty. Values are high. They're they're in the uh, they're well they're well into the fully valued if not overvalued range, and so I think that creates a significant vulnerability for the markets. Um, How do you factor in what the Fed is doing? I mean, is is the stimulus really for people who are concerned or cautious? Is that their Achilles heel and do you never have, I guess one of the things I heard recently is that bubbles, you know, every, everybody's too big to fail at this point. And don't worry about bubbles because every central bank's going to bail you out and nothing, you never need to worry about anything anymore because that's just the new norm. Does that make sense? Or is that an over, you know, reaction to what's really happening? And there are, there are, I call, call them potholes. Again, there are potholes in the road you have to be, you know, we have to be concerned about. Yeah, I, I, I sort of think in terms of, uh, I'm, I'm from the, uh, the no free lunch camp yep. and that we operate in a world of trade-offs that, uh, that sometimes the actions that the Fed takes to restore liquidity or to, uh, or with the intention of, of uh, bolstering the economy, uh, that comes with trade-offs. And um, the, uh, I think we saw coming out of the 09 uh, crash and recession that um, uh, all of the action that, was that took place uh, to get the economy going uh, brought us back at below average growth rates historically. So uh, although the market's done well, uh, the, you know, the, the economy didn't do as well. It was strong growth for 10 years and the longest expansion in history, but it came with a consequence. And that consequence was that it was well below average growth. We averaged 2% economic growth, real economic growth, not three. 
uh, that had a significant impact on people's paychecks and on people's standards of living. Uh, we don't know it because we don't have it, but had the economy grown at a normal rate, had it not been responding with a trade-off, uh, incomes and standards of living would be a full 10 to 20% higher than they are today. And so where do we go from here? Do you see that? Uh, I guess we're in an employment depression, in my view, right? Um, you know, we had a print of 2.1 million yesterday, and my guess it's more than that with all the, the PPP uh, results or whatever is being reported there. So it's probably in the 4 million range. Um, you know, and I don't, I'm concerned that you don't really see that bounce back the way that I may be reading or hearing from, you know, some of the news shows, et cetera. It's something different than that. Do you, do you see something similar or not? I think we're going to bounce back. Let's see, one, I think when the numbers come out, we're going to see that the second quarter was, uh, was uh, um, you know, dramatically down. Uh, we'll probably see the third quarter dramatically up, uh, but unfortunately, probably not, in, definitely not enough up to recover from the down. Um, and it may be into 21 or to, probably into 22 before we see economic growth back at the level that we were in 19. Uh, just because of the time, one, the time that it's going to take to get everyone. Remember, we're coming off of a period. That's one significant piece. We're coming off of a point where we had record, we had record low um, unemployment. Uh, we had record employment. And uh, in that situation, you know, to get back to that level, it's going to take the economy, you know, essentially working on all cylinders. And I just, uh, just hard to hard to see that that's going to, we're going to get back in that mode uh, b before the, b before 22. And certainly before there's some sort of a treatment or a cure for COVID that will continue to act as a headwind against the economy. You talk about earnings being a big, uh, or you write about, and even in your videos, you mentioned that earnings are a big component of stock returns, which, you know, most people I think would understand that. Um, earnings, you know, if they don't continue in the way that they've been going or the way that they're projected to go, and you start to have, if inflation stays where it is, is that, the motivation for the markets to move uh, in a different direction, or can they still sustain themselves when earnings may not be what everybody wants, everybody expects them to be? So I think there are two dynamics there. One, the, the, the only three sources of return from stock market is dividend yield, uh, earnings growth, and the change in PE. And so dividend yield is low now because valuations are high. And if anything, there's probably a little bit of a risk we're seeing some some concern that com companies may have to cut back on dividends a bit but my guess is that's not going to have a major change in the annual contribution to return uh, earnings growth is really underlying earnings growth over time uh, we'll definitely see here in the next quarter or two uh, significant drop in in earnings but the short-term changes in earnings are more business cycle related or recession or as we can go through like this a uh, a, a, a covert hurricane uh, crash in earnings. Uh, the, the key is what happens to the underlying trend in earnings, the underlying trend in the economy. And that's where I think right now there's just a lot of uncertainty coming out of this, whether we go back to a 3% growth rate uh, that we were aspiring to and getting close to, or whether we're going to have a compromised growth rate. If we have a compromised growth rate, that's going to make it much more challenging to, um, to, to get that earnings contribution to, to, to returns. Right, so that'll show up potentially in the third and fourth quarter of this year, right? In terms of maybe some kind of 
visual as to what's really going on behind the scenes, I would imagine. Is that fair? I, you know, I, I'm, um, I, I think just as soon as we get that signal, there's another signal coming in the fourth quarter um, that I think is going to be a crossroad for the economy. There, uh, there's an election coming up. Yep. Um, uh, it's a financial discussion, not a political discussion, but I think it's no doubt that there are uh, very different views about, uh, about the, uh, the types of policies that each of the candidates, as well as just not more than just one race, it's more than just a, um, uh, a it's more than just one race that's involved in what the likely policy direction is going to be. And I think there's one set of scenarios going on one fork of that road that has um, uh, um, that is different than the other fork. And I think that's going to be a significant. So we may we may start to get a signal about things, but so, but soon we'll find out that that we have a, a fork coming. Um, and I think the jury's out on which fork's going to be better for the economy. Yeah. So again, no one knows, right? We don't have the crystal ball. No, no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I also know one of the things you, you, you pay te- you spend time talking about is volatility. And vols were pretty high six weeks ago. And as you know, they've pulled back a lot. And, you know, one of the teams I follow says has a vol range of 26 to 35 and change. And, you know, we talk about that anything under 30 makes uh, 30, you know, the VIX being under 30 makes it easier f- to navigate the markets. How do you incorporate volatility into your work? And you call them volatility gremlins. And how, is there any way in this short time that you can help investors understand what, if they look at volatility, what they can do with it to help them maybe avoid, uh, again, another pothole? It must be the theme of the day, potholes. Right. And, and uh, so I call it volatility gremlins because there are two of them. Uh, one is the variability of returns. Uh, it's a, so if you get returns very steady, uh, 5%, 5%, 5%, uh, as opposed to getting it at uh, 3, 5, and 7, or 0, 5, and 10, you know, there's more dispersion in those later series. Uh, dispersion lowers compounded return. That's one gremlin that eats away at compounded returns. The second is the effect of negative numbers. If the market goes up 20% and then it goes down 20%, um, you're actually down uh, on balance. And it didn't matter which order. You could go down 20 first and then back up 20. Uh, It takes more gain to make up for losses. And the bigger the losses, the more gain it takes, right? So if we have a 10% loss, you can make it up with an 11% gain. Or if you have an 11% gain, you can give up all that gain with a 10% loss. At 20%, it takes a 25% uh, gain to offset that loss. So as the losses increase, it takes an, an, uh, a, a, uh, um, an even higher increase in gain to offset it. Uh, the key on volatility, though, is not just the mathematical effect on returns, uh, although it does have a significant impact on contact, compound returns versus simple. Uh, this also, volatility increases investor anxiety, and that often leads to poor decisions. So uh, just the awareness of volatility can help to calm some of that effect uh, on investors. But um, the, key, the key is to recognize that the markets are much more volatile than most people realize. So the key in terms of being an investor, if you understand the volatility and don't act on it, is that what you're saying? That you may be in a better situation or a better position had you actually acted on it and given it some time to work itself out? Is, is that your, what you're saying? Well, I would contend that, um, that the vol- because of volatility and because of the impact on volatility, that that would encourage investors to structure portfolios to minimize the, the, 
the volatility the portfolio experiences in relation to the market. Um, and, and, and I, I know you talk about that. So how, how does one actually get to that point? I mean, you talk about if I'm a sailor versus a rower and you, and, and I would suggest, again, tell everybody to go to your site to learn about what that means. I'm not going to ask you to give maybe a quick uh, description here or an explanation of what that sure. is. Um, but how do you help or how would somebody say, all right, I have my 401k plan and I only have so many um, opportunities or so many places I can actually place my money, right? So where do I do that or how do I figure that out in terms of maybe minimizing the volatility so I'm not sitting in these choppy waters and being concerned about that all the time and wondering whether or not I should actually get in or stay in and you know whatever it is that I do in terms of being nervous about when I get into a volatile market. And my guess is that these things continue from here maybe more often than not, potentially, but, um, uh, so I'm just curious to know what you th what you think about that. Sure. So you mentioned that the term, the uh, the concept rowing and sailing, that was actually the title of chapter 10 of Unexpected Returns. And uh, it uses a boatsman's analogy uh, that represents two different styles of investing. So sailing, much like a sailboat, is the approach of sort of putting out your sail uh, in, in your investment portfolio and going with the market. Uh, sailing is passive investing. It's, it's, taking the portfolio, exposing it to the market, and getting whatever return the market provides. Rowing relies upon action and activity. It's a much more diversified approach, and it relies much less on the trend of the market, essentially taking your oars out and rowing. And so the reason that's important is to conceptualize that back in the 1960s and 70s, when the market went up and down and up and down, but ended about where it started in that secular bear, a sailing approach would have ended just where it started with the market. Yet rowing there would have been more successful because you would have made investment progress. The 80s and 90s, though, were a right period to, to use sailing. Now, it doesn't mean you can't use rowing when the market's going up. Um, you'll have a smoother ride. You may not get quite all the return, uh, but that can be an investor's choice. Uh, the market soared in the 80s and 90s, and a sailing strategy, putting out that sail, would have had a nice ride. The, that's the key to understanding the secular market environment as opposed to the cyclical trend. The secular market environment helps us understand whether we think that a sailing approach might be successful or more or less successful than a rowing approach. When we have high valuations, like we do today, when we're in a position to have a very high likelihood of a decade or more of below average returns, it makes rowing much more attractive and sailing much more risky. Doesn't mean an investor shouldn't use either one. And there are lots of different techniques to use for rowing and sailing. Matter of fact, one of the frustrations that I receive from investors that read unexpected returns is they come back and say, okay, I got to the end. I got the message. I completely understand it now, but what do I do about it? Right. Um, right. And, and that's, and that's, and that's why I'm again, a market climatologist, not a weather forecaster. And that's why I leave it to folks like you, Mike, to let yeah. folks know all the different ways that they can, they can row. No, that, and that's fair. And I appreciate that. And I think it's a great explanation and very helpful uh, for everybody that's listening to this. Couple more questions. Um, do you think that we're in a bubble uh, now at this point? I, I know that um, you talk about your Y curve and I'm, I'm wondering if we're out on the stem of the Y curve, so the base of the Y, or, and I'll ask you to just quickly explain what that means too because we don't have any visuals here. Or, or is it something else? I, I, and I'm wondering from where we are in terms of looking at historical PEs and you know the work that you do and Chiller does that maybe we really are ahead, we're, we're there, right? I, I mean, I, I'm, I think about that all the time. Are we there? What do you think? 
I think, let's see. So the, uh, so let's hit on the two things. First, let's go ahead and, and uh, close the loop on Y curve. So the Y curve is a graphical representation of the relationship between the inflation rate and PE. And I think I've mentioned today a couple of times about inflation being the driver of PE um, over time. Um, it's called the Y curve because when you plot the, the historical data, it looks like a Y on its side. So imagine a, the Y rotated to the left so that the fork in the Y is on the left side of the graph and the stem of the Y is on the right. Across the bottom, we have the price earnings ratio. The key thing to recognize is that when inflation is low and stable, near zero, PE can go up and that's kind of moving out on the stem of the Y. But as you see inflation go up or we go into the inflation goes down into deflation, it causes PE to decline. So the Y is effectively when you leave price stability, when you're at a low stable inflation rate, if you start going up, PE declines. If you start going down, PE declines. So there's a sweet spot in the middle. And right now we've got very low, we think maybe stable inflation. With all this disruption, it's hard to say. Uh, I'm not gonna predict which way inflation is gonna go or if it's gonna stay right here. The Fed seems committed to keep it low and stable. But for now, the market is pricing average growth, um, which would be a little optimistic from here with all the disruption. And it's priced in relatively stable inflation. So right now, whether you look at a Schiller's PE or Cressmont's PE, we're running in the mid to starting to move just above the mid 20s, um, which would be on the very high end of, uh, if not a little above the high end of the fair value range for PE, even in low stable inflation environments. So it, it, does, it doesn't feel like we're in a bubble, but it feels like we're, we're, we're out on the edge a bit. Yeah, I think of it in terms of what's really running the game at this point. So you have, you know, I look at it, uh, my friend Tom Dorsey, who founded Dorsey Wright, would say mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the, the soldiers have left the field, but the generals are still out there. So when you look at the indexes, there's probably a small number of companies that are, are, are driving the indexes higher. Um, and, you know, from a historical measure, that to me sometimes, and maybe even where we are now, would suggest that we may not be there yet, but it's possible we're, we're on our way. And if this continues, we may, you know, unless obviously every, you start to have more participation across the board. And we have recently in some days, but I'm just wondering if, the, you know, in terms of what I look at is, is that really the, the next shoe to drop? But like you said, you just don't know yet, right? So. When we get the earnings rate, when earnings get, get back to kind of a normal level, and actually we're coming off of a period where reported earnings uh, reflected well, well above average profit margins. So earnings reported were higher than the long-term trend in earnings. As a result of what we've gone through here the last quarter and what we may see the next quarter, we're very likely to see that earnings number below the reported number to be below that long-term trend. That's one of the reasons that Crestmont and Schiller and others uh, normalize PE for that business cycle. Right. This is going to be an important year to really focus on normalized earnings because the reported earnings number, just like we saw in 0809, is going to become distorted and it's going to send mixed and actually opposite signals to what, uh, to what we should be reading in the market. Right. All right, well, that's great. I mean, taking up enough of your time, uh, went a little longer than I thought we would. Um, but I would, uh, again, thank you very much. I would encourage everybody to go to CrestmontResearch.com. 
to take a look at and uh, see what Ed is talking about. And there's a lot of information there. Um, and also I would encourage you, if you have an interest in getting his book, just to send me uh, an email or write to me on LinkedIn and just say, Mike, send me one of Ed's books. And when we get them signed, we'll send them off. And any, any parting words or anything we should, uh, anything that kind of grabs you right at the moment that would say, hey, if you're an investor, you want to maybe consider this. I would say if you're an investor, you want to consider uh, diversification. This is a period of a lot of uncertainty. And um, I think one of the uh, investment philosophies coming out of unexpected returns and probable outcomes is the value of diversification. And, uh, and in an environment like this, uh, applying the, the, the rowing strategies and a rowing approach to investing. Uh, but I have enjoyed our conversation today, Mike, and look forward to having another one in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. All the best.